Halcyon Days Motorcycle Nights is an innovative, rules-like, collaborative storytelling game coming to Kickstarter on April the 11th. Halcyon Days Motorcycle Nights is set in a fictional middle American town, the Red Oaks, in the 1970s. The time when the music was loud, the bikes were even louder, and everything seemed so simple before your favourite characters from Tale of the Manticore were brutally murdered. Tell stories of intrigue and action, shaped by your favourite music, and enjoy the companion soundtrack. Music is at the heart of everything that happens in Red Oaks. Find Halcyon Days Motorcycle Nights by searching for us on Kickstarter or find us on Twitter at Red Oaks Creative. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In chapter 69, the companions get a taste of the surreal as they enter the Egojin's gigantic forge, following the sound of singing, and discover a giant stone automaton working at the anvil. Before they move on, Umura has a close encounter with a fire elemental that has been imprisoned in the bloomer. It almost persuades her into releasing it from bondage, but the sorceress resists and gets away, likely avoiding a disaster. In a flashback, we witness Harl's graduation from student life a few years ago in Duarvar. Between what he's learned in his studies and Grumblebelly's maps, he does have some idea of how the Egogen is laid out and what they might expect to find, but it is far from a comprehensive knowledge of the place. Until now, there have been no choices to make. The path has only led in one direction, but after leaving the forge, they come to a T-junction and must choose their path. Harl makes an arbitrary choice, but this is soon followed by a more difficult decision as they encounter a set of double doors marked with a pair of symbols that look vaguely familiar. Trusting his gut and unwilling to take an unnecessary risk, Harl makes the call to leave the symbols alone and go back the way they came. After the last episode, I started thinking about a dwarf's ability to detect traps underground. The rules say dwarves are, quote, expert miners and are able to find slanting passages, traps, shifting walls, and new construction one third of the time, end quote. It doesn't stipulate that the trap would have to be mechanical, and it is reasonable to think that the glyphs that they've seen on the doors would be present in both Dwarvar and Thangar as well. I'm going to give Harl and Daz a chance to recognize them. A 1 or a 2 on a d6 will indicate success. Here's the roll for Harl. A 2. Just for the fun of it, let's find out if Daz recognizes them as well. 
a four. No, he does not. Chapter 70 Part 1 Day 98 Late Night Party Status Harl, 28 of 34 hit points Gyrios, 22 of 37 Eridine, 20 of 20 Umura, 12 of 25 Daz, 17 of 17 Spells Available Umura has memorized Old Portal Charm Person, Levitate, Lightning Bolt, and Water Breathing. Gyrios has prayed for, Resist Fire, Speak with Animals, Striking, and Create Water. Oh! exclaimed Harl. He stopped so suddenly in his tracks that Daz almost collided with him. I remember now. I knew I had seen those markings before. I knew it. But I just couldn't remember where. Ha! Now I remember. <laughs> there followed a pause that was too long for Umura's impatience. Well? Hmm? Oh, sorry. They are glyphs of warding, very much like the ones we saw in Blacknail's vault. Except these ones unleash an acid cloud when detonated, instead of explosive force. Umura tucked a lock of hair behind an ear. Are you sure? I have no doubt. The same glyphs can be found in Dwarvar. A pair just like them is on the doors that lead into the mines. Is that where you think those doors lead? asked Gyrios. I hope they do. We have no business in the mines of the Aegwijin, and if we have no need to open them, those doors are much better left undisturbed. A memory suddenly came to Gyrios, unbidden, and he re-experienced the Queen Ankeg's acid, what it had done to Puck Swiftpeck. The cleric found himself nodding in agreement. In that case, I agree. It's best that we leave them alone, said Umura. Listen, we need to start being more careful. We've been moving fairly quickly through these passages. Like you said, Harl, nobody forgets what we saw in Blacknail's fault. You're right. We do need to slow our pace and be more careful. The tunnel they were following continued straight for another 50 feet beyond the intersection before turning 90 degrees to the left. Here they found a flight of stone steps going up. Gyrios, whose legs really were aching, groaned. Oh, no. <laughs> the steps to enlightenment, Umura laughed. We'll be lighter when we reach the top, that's for sure, <laughs> said Harl, getting in on the joke. Harl and Daz made a quick inspection of the first few steps before they began their ascent. Finding nothing to cause concern, they led the way, single file, maintaining their previous marching order, with Harl in the lead, then Daz, followed by Umura, now holding her lantern in her hands, then Eridine with Gyrios bringing up the rear. After a few minutes, they came to a landing, so they stopped to catch their breath. There's something else I've been wondering, said Gyrios, wiping sweat from his brow. Actually, there are a few things. What's on your mind, my friend? Harl asked, sitting down on a step. Well, have any of you noticed that it's getting warmer? When we entered at the guard tower, it was quite cool, but now I feel overheated. It gets warmer as we get closer to the places where the Fire River travels through the mountain's interior. The water is heated by the mountain's core and carries the heat with it. That might be good news, since we're looking for the mushroom fields, and typically those are located in warmer areas. The water carries the heat with it. How interesting, Gyrios commented. What else were you wondering about? 
Oh, it's probably not important, said the cleric, waving a hand to dismiss the question. No, really, ask. I could use another minute of rest, to be honest. Well, in that case, I've noticed that there isn't any dust in here. The Egerton has been empty for, what did you say before, close to 900 years? And there's no dust. There should be a layer an inch thick. Harl nodded. Yes, that would seem to make sense, but I do have an answer for you. You see, there's an air current moving through these tunnels constantly. You can't really feel it, but it's there. If we were using torches instead of Umora's lantern, you would see the flames moving in it. But how can there be air moving this far deep inside the mountain? Girios wanted to know. Well, there are some vents to help with circulation. We saw one in the forge. Did you notice? No? Well, why would you? Also, the water carries the air along with it and keeps it moving constantly. The water carries the air? Girios looked doubtful. Harl shrugged. I'm not a natural philosopher, Girios, so I don't know how it works, but yes, it is true all the same. Girios had removed his helmet, and again he wiped a hand across his shining bald scalp. All right. I'm ready to continue if you are. He looked up at the next flight of stairs. It curled up and away, out of sight. I'm ready, said Umura. Daz? The Thangarian nodded. Harl punched Daz on the shoulder. Good. Let's go. Girios followed them up, clapping his helmet back over his head and muttering that his legs were already burning. Welcome to Arius and meet the Ram Pack and Party Advantage, a D&D play podcast. Join Manny, Garrus, Roshin, and Tagoro as they travel the vast lands and learn long-forgotten secrets and find themselves in all kinds of shenanigans. So what are we doing? Drugs. We did that in season one already. Did we? Well, you did. Yes. <laughs> Tagoro got a taste warm. Oh, God. I, I, I'm now the personal healer and I have to take care of Manny. Well, I mean, your, your girlfriend was the personal healer more than you. Remember? I'm a dragon. Yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, last time you were a dragon, it didn't go so good. Let's not repeat, okay? Xnay on the Dragnay. Got it? Tune in every other Wednesday on all your favorite podcast platforms of choice and on YouTube. Will the party find the advantage on their next encounter? Only one way to find out. See you then. Chapter 70 Part 2 Day 98 Around Midnight Party Status The party status is unchanged. The muscles in Girios's legs had gone from burning, to feeling like jelly, to completely numb. They had been climbing these steps for close to an hour. Just when he was starting to believe that they were locked in some kind of purgatorial loop in space and time, he caught sight of the top of the stairs over the dwarves' heads. Neither Harl nor Daz saw it. They were both doggedly looking at their feet and huffing with labored breath. Thank Mazakar, he said earnestly. At Girios' voice, Harl looked up and saw what the cleric saw. I think we'll need, we'll need to take a break soon. Stop and sleep for a while. Perhaps when we reach the top, said Harl, answering everyone's prayers. Harl and Daz somehow found new energy and picked up their pace when they looked up and realized how close they were to the top. The two dwarves ascended into a chamber with flagstone floor, walls, and ceiling. 
It was a 20 by 20 foot square with an archway on either side that, like mirror images, opened to a pair of curving hallways. Right in the center of the wall, facing the stairwell, was a large image of a comely dwarven woman in bas-relief. Besides her pretty face, she boasted a generous figure under a long skirt and tight bodice. Her hair was in braids that hung to her waist. A pickaxe was slung casually over one shoulder, and she held a bucket in the other hand. Harl and Daz advanced slowly towards it, admiring it while their companions caught up. The woman's face was shown in three-quarter view so that she appeared to look at the dwarves out of the corner of her eyes. Her plump lips showed the barest hint of a smile. A few moments after the first of the humans entered the chamber, to Harl and Daz's astonishment, that smile dropped flat and then turned down at the corners. The face, or more precisely the lower half of the face, had come alive. Umura, feeling lightheaded from climbing those stairs, blinked hard. She wondered if she was hallucinating. But the two dwarves were staring at it agog, just as she was. In the common tongue, it addressed the intruders, just as Eridine and Gyrios crested the last step and entered the room. Be thee friend or be thee foe. Speak the watchword if you would pass. The voice was otherworldly and imperious. It echoed as though it was being spoken in a much larger space. The entire party froze, though Eredin's eyes, wide with alarm, flicked about the room, desperately scanning everything. Speak the watchword if you would pass, the woman in the bas-relief repeated, more loudly this time. Harl's mind raced. He knew he had to do something. He stepped forward and cleared his throat. <coughs> <coughs> Harl is going to try to guess the password, and I'm going to give him a chance to guess it correctly. But before I even allow him that, he'll have to make a wisdom check, just to have the wherewithal to give any answer in time. Harl has a wisdom score of 14, so he needs to roll that or under on a d20. Here's the roll. A 3. He realizes that a wild guess at least gives them a chance, whereas saying nothing is going to have the same consequences as getting the password wrong. Okay, I think the chance of him getting it right on the first try is... Well, it's very, very slim. I'll roll this d20 again. On a natural 20, he'll have guessed it. Here's the roll. <clears throat> the watchword is labor. For just a half second, nothing happened. Harl even had time to turn and wink at Umura before the floor suddenly split and fell open beneath them. The two halves crashed against the walls of the pit that had opened directly under them, and the companions plummeted straight down. The Egogen does not have many traps in areas of significant traffic like this one. Most of the traps that do exist serve to protect areas containing wealth, such as the treasury or the mine, which is still rich with veins of gold and deposits of diamonds, amethysts, and emeralds. This particular trap is so old that even during its heyday, many of the dwarves who lived in the Agrigen were unaware of its presence. This trap is designed only to trigger if a non-dwarf enters the room. When that happens, a magic mouth appears, after a few seconds delay, and demands that the interlopers give a password. If the password is not given, or if the wrong password is given, the floor splits in two along an invisible crooked line concealed between the flagstones and drops open like a pair of saloon doors, dumping everyone in the room into a second chamber 20 feet below. 
According to the rules of BXD&D, falling damage is determined by rolling a d6 for every 10 feet fallen, so every character is going to lose 2 d6 hit points. Every character, that is, except for Umura. At the last moment, she casts her spell of Levitate, and saves herself from an injury that could potentially have killed her. While floating in midair, she looks up and can see the two halves of the floor closing above her as the trap resets. For a brief moment, she wills herself to rise back up, but two things make her change her mind and float back down to the floor. One, she doesn't want to be separated from the others, and two, she can see that there is a single metal door set in the wall in this new room. Before we return to the story, I'll make the rolls to determine how much damage the other four take. Rolling for Harl. Eight points of damage. Rolling for Daz. Five points. Rolling for Eridine. Seven points. Rolling for Gyrios. Four points. The freefall only lasted a couple of seconds. Gyrios, Daz, Eridine, and Harl hit the floor hard. Eridine's vision went black for a moment before it returned. When it did, she was lying on her back and looking straight up. Above her, the two halves of the floor were grinding back up into their original closed position. A ratcheting sound came from either side as some hidden mechanism lifted the heavy stone slabs back into place. Dramatis Personae Umura Umura had always been a curious person. In fact, if there was just one trait, one remnant of her youth, remaining within her, that was it. As a child, her habit was to spend her already limited free time exploring the enormous castle Anuxon. There were ever so many rooms, and just when she thought she had seen them all, she found someplace new. One of the servants had even once shown her a secret passage that allowed the staff to move about between the very walls as they went about their duties, invisible to the family. Her favorite spots changed from year to year, but when she was seven years old, Umura most enjoyed spending her time in the chapel to Ahea, the Solar, and in the garden outside. The mausoleum was there, and it scared her, so she never went inside. Instead, she found some amusement in spying on Milkweed, who could often be found perched on the mausoleum roof like a deformed bird. The best time to go exploring was on Governess Nogana's day off. While the mean old bat was away, doing her shopping in town, Umora could move about unchecked, without anyone screaming at her to go back to her room every five minutes. Sometimes Maris joined her on these adventures, sometimes not. On this particular day, Umura was on her own, and in a part of the estate that she rarely visited. It was the second basement level. Normally this part of the castle frightened her, and she was forbidden to be there, so she mostly avoided it. But on some days, when she felt a little braver and a lot more reckless than usual, she crept down the stairs, just as quiet as she could, and searched for novelty and diversion. If that servant had never shown her the secret door upstairs, she would not have noticed the hairline crack in the flagstone wall down here. But once it caught her eye, it seemed so obvious. How had she never seen it before? She traced a finger up along the seam and discovered a small, discolored stone that protruded just a little more than the others. Without thinking about whether she should push it, she pushed it, and a secret door opened in front of her, making a little scraping sound of stone on stone. Inside it was dark, so dark that she couldn't tell if it was a room beyond or a hall, but she could see a thin, glowing vertical line further in and beyond the expanse of darkness. 
She clucked her tongue softly and listened to the reverberation. This was a room, and not especially small. Umura took a step inside, and then another. It felt disconcerting to walk in such total blackness, with the only verifiable reality being the floor beneath her boots. There was a smell in here like spices, but somehow different. She became aware of her heartbeat. Her breathing became shallow and quickened as well. This was exciting. This was fun. She took three more steps forward, a little too boldly. On the third step, her chest struck something hard as she collided with a table. There was a tinkle of glass bottles as she banged against it and then a crash as one of those bottles fell to the floor and shattered. She looked up and felt the blood drain from her face as the glowing line on the other side of the room expanded into a rectangle. She realized that it was a door and that it had been mostly closed and now had been opened. The unmistakable silhouette of her father filled the rectangle of light. The room was now partially illuminated. She was in some kind of laboratory with beakers and alembics, cauldrons and vats. There were dozens and dozens of glass bottles sitting on the table she had struck. And of course, the one on the floor, shattered and guilty. Umura's father was not a kindly man, nor did he have any special affection for his children, especially not for a girl. She was grateful for the backlighting that made it hard to see his features. She had no hope of being forgiven and released. Father would be furious. When he spoke, his voice was thick with menace. You! Look what you've done! There was a terrifying pause here where Umura could tell his anger was so great that it had robbed him of words. She shrank into herself as he continued, his voice trembling with fury. Go back to your room. Stand in the corner and wait there until I come up and see you. You had better be there when I come, girl. Chapter 70 Part 3 Day 98 Around Midnight Party Status Harl 20 of 34 hit points. Gyrios, 18 of 37. Eridine, 13 of 20. Umura, 12 of 25. Daz, 12 of 17. Spells available. Umura has memorized Hold Portal, Charm Person, Lightning Bolt, and Water Breathing. Gyrios has prayed for Resist fire, speak with animals, striking, and create water. Eridine continued to look up at the ceiling. The ratcheting noise had stopped and the trap had fully reset. The jagged line between the two halves of ceiling that had traced the flagstone edges had been so cunningly cut that the seam was now invisible. She propped herself up on an elbow and took in her surroundings. Gyrios, Harl, and Daz were all sitting up and prodding their bodies for signs of serious injury. A fall like theirs could have easily broken a bone. Luckily, everyone seemed alright. Battered, but alright. Umura was still in bad shape from their encounter with the hill giant, but she had not been hurt in the fall. Currently, she was levitating a foot above the floor. Lucky, she thought. Gyrios must have been having the same thought, because he said, Umura. Sometime you will have to teach the rest of us how to do that. The sorceress looked back with a wan smile. Right, sure, Gyrios. Anytime. 
Aridine examined the room they were in. There wasn't much to see. It was a cell, albeit a large one, a 20-foot cube with a single door set in the nearest wall. The door had a keyhole, and so would almost certainly be locked. Unbidden, a memory came. She recalled her time imprisoned in the little cell in Burke, where she had awaited execution. Aridine sprang to her feet and made for the door. Pulling on the handle confirmed her suspicion. It didn't budge. She knelt down and put her eye to the keyhole, but there was only darkness beyond. She thought about asking Umora for her lamp, but there would be no way to shine the light through the keyhole and look through it at the same time. She looked back at the others. Harl was watching her, and she noticed for the first time how dark the circles under his eyes had become. She shook her head, indicating that she couldn't see anything, and beckoned him over. Perhaps with his dark vision, he would see something. Harl didn't get up. Instead, he laid back down, and, with his nose sticking straight up, said, Aerodine, this might be the safest groom in the whole mountain. We are hurt, and we need rest. I suggest we all get some sleep and worry about that door whenever we wake up. With the exception of the occasional moaning from Harl, who still seemed plagued by nightmares, most of the night passed peacefully and soundlessly. In fact, so peacefully and soundlessly that more than one of the companions guiltily suspected that they had nodded off during their own watch. Gyrios, as usual, took the last shift and did his prayers in the dark. This time, he chose a different selection of spells than what had become his usual. When he was done, he made his own sunrise by slowly pulling the cover back from Umura's lantern. The light gently woke the others, and soon his companions were sitting up and rubbing their eyes or groaning and complaining for more time. Seeing them with fresh eyes on a new day, Gyrios realized they looked terrible. Harl was especially haggard, pale and sweaty. Once again, he had slept poorly. Everyone wore badges of injury, bruises and cuts, himself included. Umura looked worse than she was. Her white dress was covered in dark, dried blood. All the same, he went to her and spent one of his healing miracles on her. He used a second on Harl and cast a third one on himself. When Aradine woke, she wasted little time before pulling out the wallet containing her thieves' tools, selecting a pair of stiff wires, and going to work on the cell door. This time, Harl did not try to stop her. As a 6th level thief, Eridine has a 45% chance to pick this lock. By now, she has experience with a couple of dwarven locks, and her understanding of how they work has definitely increased. Here's her roll. 52. Close, but not good enough. Despite her best efforts, Eridine could not defeat this lock. It was too complicated, and the tumblers were too heavy. It made sense that a cell door would be extra secure, but she was frustrated all the same. Still, the panic she might have felt at her failure did not come. Eridine knew that where she had failed, Umura would likely succeed. And when she looked at the sorceress and shook her head, the other woman simply waved her hand and the lock clicked open. Eridine bit her lip. She could not help but feel a burst of hot shame, and for a brief moment, she hated Umura for being able to do what she could not so easily. She pushed the feeling aside. Gyrios would have called it small-minded thinking, and that she should know better. By now the others were standing up and readying their weapons, so she knocked an arrow to her bow, holding it in place with one hand. With the other, she pulled the door open as quietly as she could. It opened on a rectangular room, 60 feet long and half as wide. 
There was a door with a barred window in the center of it, on the opposite side, kitty corner to them. Three smaller doors, identical to their own, were evenly spaced apart in a row, along the wall to their left. Aradine thought that there were likely other cells behind those doors. The room was not unoccupied. In the middle of it, floating in mid-air, and rotating slowly, as though hanging from an invisible thread, was a large gray sphere. It was covered in some kind of skin or hide that was patterned with diamond shapes like a reptile's. It was about four feet in diameter, and was topped with several strange finger-like stalks that ended in fleshy bulbs. Eredin realized that they had been looking at the back of this alien thing when it completed its rotation and its enormous single eye, set right in the center, came into view. It stared at them, and they at it. The stalks on top, it turned out, were not tipped with featureless bulbs, but with other smaller eyes, smaller by comparison only. Each was the size of a tomato. The single eye wetly reflected Umura's light, its gaze unblinking, while the eye stalks on top writhed like serpents. This creature did not belong in their world. Just then, one of the eye stalks stopped its slow wriggling and probed forward. It seemed to be considering them. Because it did not have a visible mouth, what was already bizarre became truly surreal when the thing spoke to them, its voice somehow reaching their minds directly. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to support the show, there are now four ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, available for a buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. My gratitude to everyone who has supported the show in any of these ways. Today I'd like to share a review from iTunes with you. This one is posted by Matthias. Now I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, so I'm going to spell it out. M-A-D-T-E-U-Z. They write, This podcast is amazing. A dark fantasy story with the unpredictability of Dungeons and Dragons. It's fantastic. Thanks so much for that review, Matthias. And I apologize if I am inevitably pronouncing your name wrong. Something special about this review is that it comes from Italy. I have listeners in Italy? How cool is that? You know the way iTunes works with reviews, it hides the ones that aren't from your own country, so it took a while for me to find this. So glad I did. I really appreciate the kind review and, hey, Italy, thanks for listening. Now let's talk about this episode's great voice talent. Playing the role of Magic Mouth, a phrase I don't really say very often, is the wonderful gamer mom Luna the host of Tales from the Tavern. The show is always a good time. You can find it on Twitch. And there's another newcomer to the show. Welcome to James, lead GM of Tabletop Misfits on Twitch, playing the role of Umura's father. Also returning to the show in the role of weird creature hovering in the prison is Hodag RPG. Thanks Luna, James, and Hodag for making this episode so much better. For those of you who use socials, you can find me on Twitter at ManticoreTale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com, where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other miscellany. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls.
Hey all, I'm Derek, host of the How Not to DM podcast. I hope you'll join me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Each Wednesday, I bring on a new guest to talk about how they got into TTRPGs, some of their biggest mistakes and triumphs from behind the screen, and their awesome projects. There's no right way to listen to How Not to DM. Start from the beginning and binge, or take a look at my guests and pick a few that you recognize or that sound interesting to you. There's something for everyone, whether you're looking to up your skills running games or just want to learn more about what it takes to design, create, and run awesome TTRPGs. Head to my Twitter account at HN2DM to find my link tree, guest announcements, and more. And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.